Hello again, everyone. My name is Kyle, and if I didn't say hello to you earlier, hi, this is Uplift. I want to welcome you here. For those of you in person, I'm so glad that you're here. And if you are listening on our podcast, Anchor Point, I'm glad that you are here and listening. We are in a series here at Uplift called Questioning Jesus, where we are examining some of the questions that were asked of Jesus and specifically the questions that he answered. The fourth question in this series, the fourth question, especially for right now, is this What is the greatest command? What is the greatest command? This was asked of Jesus by a scribe in Mark chapter 12. Now, if you've been a believer for a long time, you can answer this question without even thinking about it. It's easy to recall, but let me issue you the same challenge that I issued to you in our first of this series. I want you to listen to this question in isolation. I said in the first of this series that typically we use inductive reasoning when we study scripture. In other words, so much of this information about Scripture is ingrained that when we study Scripture, we now use it to prove a point. So our challenge, and my challenge to you, is to instead use some deductive reasoning. Toss away some of your preconceptions and just let the data of this question and this answer build to its natural solution. Assume, if you will, that you're not a believer, that you're not a follower. Assume that you are a skeptic or that you're just curious about Jesus, or maybe you're angry or you're confused or distracted. If we do that, if we do that, then we're going to find ourselves with some very different and fresh perspectives of this particular question. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read from verses 28 through 31. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. You probably know this by heart. Here we go. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the greatest, the most important. By the way, in Mark chapter 12, until this time, there have been a series of attacks or questions about Jesus. So the scribe kind of walks into this moment. So he asks this question of Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Verse 31, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Man, what a plot twist here. The greatest command is a Mount Everest of a statement. It tests our relational capacity for every single relationship in the entirety of our lives. Our next door neighbors, our relationships with our coworkers, our employers, our employees, our spouses, our children, our parents, and so on. Don't kid yourself here. This is not just a nice little memory verse. This command leaves no relational stone unturned. It exposes 
every single relationship in our lives that needs maintenance. So I want to do a couple of things in the next few moments here as we examine this question and this answer. The first thing is I want us to actually hold this commandment in our hands. I want us to handle this. I want us to admit, and I'm very serious about this, I want us to admit the impossibility of ever being successful following what Jesus said to be the greatest commandment of all. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm, I want us to admit this impossibility because this command sounds, when we hear it in isolation, it sounds like an impossible thing. It's a shut you down kind of command because really when you think about it, the first question that you ask, at least the one that I ask, is who is really capable of this anyway? So that's the first thing. And the second thing I want us to do is I want us to cross-examine this answer, this command, and I want us to look at, and I want to show you the absolute possibility of following this command, even though it seems incredibly impossible. So two things, the impossibility of it and then the possibility of it. So first, let's talk about why the greatest command, this command to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let's talk about why following this command is completely impossible. And by the way, there are probably quite a few reasons it's impossible, but I've narrowed it down to just a couple. First of all, there's two reasons I think. First of all, it's impossible to follow because we just have difficulty with trust. We just have difficulty with trust. Do we really trust the validity of this statement? Do we even trust that it's possible to do this? So that's, that's the first reason why it's impossible. And the second reason why it seems impossible to follow this command is because we have a difficulty with boundaries. This command breaks every boundary. And those of us with, who have difficulties with this, we're going to find this hard to follow. So first of all, let's talk about this difficulty with trust. You know, if I asked you and a small group of your friends or colleagues to share what you believe to be the greatest of anything, the greatest Marvel movie, the greatest athlete, the greatest book, the greatest president, if I ask you to compare that, you would notice an avalanche of opinions immediately. There would be an immediate amount of disagreements. In fact, we really don't trust the greatest of anything because our definition of what is the greatest fluctuates. Superlatives are completely subjective, and it makes them completely untrustworthy for really two specific reasons. One, it's because we just consume so much information that our opinions often change. I want you to listen to this. Did you know that American adults consume? You got you to hear this. American adults consume, on average, 11.1 hours of media Every single day, almost half of our day is spent consuming information. Almost half. Did you know that the average American checks our cell phones about 63 times a day? And the average American spends about two and a half hours on social media every day. That is an incredible amount of data that we are downloading. Because of that insane amount, we have a high level of distrust for anything that's called the greatest because we're constantly getting 
information of the next greatest thing. This information changes so quickly. So we have an accelerated amount of information, but two, we also live in an era when distrust itself is rapidly accelerating. Now, I know that's rather meta, but I want you to stay with me. Our current era, you've probably noticed this, our current era has seen a rise in both ideological distrust and social distrust. Current studies actually show that we distrust once held sacred institutions more than ever. And the very same studies also show that we distrust people more than ever. And our response to this distrust, to things that disappoint us, it once was anger. But now we no longer express our distrust as anger. Sociologists have noted that disgust has replaced anger as our primary response to things that we don't like, the things that disappoint us. So not only, check this out, not only do we not trust organizations or people anymore, we aren't even angered by them. Now we just don't like them. So this erosion of trust has actually led us to question everything and to not trust anything. Dr. Richard Plass and James Cofield, Dr. Plass is actually a licensed counselor and Mr. Cofield is a pastor. They're the authors of a book called The Relational Soul. They've expertly defined this lack of trust in a series of three questions. I want you to see if you've asked these questions yourselves. Here's the first one. How many people do you know who trust well enough to love God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbors as themselves? That's the first question. Here's their second question. How many parents or mates, coworkers, parishioners, and pastors do you know personally who have amazing relational skills? And here's the third question and the one that hurts me the most. Would you sign yourself up for such a responsibility of loving God this way, knowing what you know about yourself? I don't know many people that I trust enough to follow this command implicitly. And I don't know many people at all with amazing relational skills 24-7. And I can tell you right now, I don't trust myself well enough to sign myself up for this responsibility. It really seems at the end of all this that we are just hardwired to distrust. But why? Why do we not trust well? Because accelerated information and accelerated disappointment, they're not the only culprits here. Our ability to distrust is something that we actually learn when we are young. We just may not even realize it. I want you to listen to this extended quote from The Relational Soul and their take on the origins of our tendency to not trust. This is what they said. The Apostle Paul localizes our mistrust 
with all of its reactive strategies in our flesh. It's a term that Paul uses over 100 times. For Paul, the flesh is an alien resident within us, wreaking havoc on our relational world. Our way of doing relationships is anchored in our relational history. And in particular, and this is a big one, in our family of origin. Many of the patterns of the flesh are generational. Many patterns are supported by our religious heritage. Recognizing the particulars of our flesh is very difficult. That's why changing the way that we relate is so difficult. It's why we repeat the same old dysfunctional attitudes and behaviors in all of our relationships. All of us follow the script we learned as kids. And this is how they close this quote. Whatever was emotionally normal early is perpetuated in our relationships. We do whatever it takes to promote an internal sense of security, even if, listen to this, even if it is destructive to our own souls. And bottom line, we don't trust very well. And we learned how to not trust a long time ago. It makes following this command, this answer, an impossibility. We don't trust it. We don't trust that it's possible, and we don't trust the guy who said it. So, we find this impossible because of our difficulty with trust. But the second reason that we find this commandment an impossibility is because we have a difficulty with boundaries. Remember, I told you this speaks into our relational capacity. And these two items, a difficulty with trust and a difficulty with boundaries, are all about our relational capacity. We have a difficulty with boundaries. What are boundaries? What are boundaries? Well, boundaries are spheres of operation and responsibility. And when those boundaries are broken or they're missing in our lives, we find ourselves in the midst of some fairly serious trauma. You've probably heard of the book called Boundaries, written by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. They actually identify four types of people who have trouble with boundaries. I want you to see if you fit into one of these categories. Here's the first type of person they identify as having trouble with boundaries. They call them the compliant. So if you're compliant, if you are a compliant, you find yourself, this might be you, saying yes to bad things. And you do so, you do that because your family of origin was never a place that empowered you to say no. You were never given the option of disagreeing or setting limits. So that means that now you found yourself with that very inability today. Compliant people actually have trouble recognizing and refusing evil. So the compliant person has difficulty with boundaries. Here's the second type of person they indicate that has this difficulty. They call them the avoidant, the avoidant. The avoidant says no to good things. 
And they do that, this might be you, because they're driven by a feeling of low self-worth. You are unable, if you are an avoidant, to ask for help for fear that you would be seen as a burden. Here's the third one. The third type of person with difficulty with boundaries, they call the controller. Controllers don't respect the limits or the boundaries that other people put up. Controllers also resist taking personal responsibility, which then leads to a chronic lack of self-discipline. And here's the fourth, the fourth type of person. So you have the compliant, the avoidant, the controller. Here's the fourth, the non-responsive. This person has a critical perception of others. They denigrate and criticize and demean others to fuel their own self-worth. Non-responsives are narcissistic and they are completely self-absorbed. So listen to this. Those of us who are compliant, we find the command, this all-consuming command to love God, way too exhausting to attempt. We bend over backwards to help everyone else but we do so at the expense of ourselves. It's one more thing to do. Those of us who are avoidance find this command, this greatest of all commands, too, too intimidating to attempt. We believe that we're not worthy enough to participate in something so grand and so incredible. And those of us who are controllers, we find this command an impediment to ambition. This command's too much, and we don't have enough self-discipline to do this. And those of us who are non-responsive find this command to be selfish and unaccommodating. It's way too much about God and not enough about me. So this difficulty to trust and this difficulty to manage boundaries makes this greatest of all commands to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength that makes this greatest of all commands a bridge too far. It's an impossibility that's almost laughable in its implications. But the beauty and the majesty of Jesus actually makes this greatest of all commands a possible impossibility because Jesus does something with this answer that's completely amazing and really phenomenal. And he puts this command within very easy reach, even though we have difficulty trusting or even if we have difficulty with boundaries. I want to show you a couple of brief points about the possibility of this that are inextricably connected. First, the very first of this is that there is a distinction in Jesus's amazing answer. There's a distinction in his answer that we don't automatically see. Go ahead and look again. It's in Matthew chapter 12. There is a distinction here between a couple of words that I want to show you. There's two words. The first is the word with, and the second word is the word from. So, so listen carefully. The word with, you know this, it's a preposition. It refers to an object we use to do something else. The word from 
It's also a preposition. And it refers to the place where something begins. So the word with does not imply motivation whatsoever, but the word from, it does imply motivation. Now, what's this little detour about? It's this, because Jesus's answer contains a very valuable word that begins to unlock the possibility of following this command. In Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, our English Bibles insert the word with. Do you love God with all of your heart? You can see that. And our English Bibles do that for the sake of making the text read easier, that it flows well. And I don't blame them for that. I think it's a good call. But the Greek word there is actually the word from. So Jesus' answer to the question of the greatest command, though read like this, and let's read it, read it with me, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's not exactly what Jesus said. Instead, it's this, love the Lord your God from all of your heart and from all of your soul and from all of your mind, and from all of your strength. In other words, there is a difference between the with and the from. The heart and the soul and the mind and the strength are not the instruments of our response to God, but they are the source of our response to God. If we love God with these things, our love, you know this because you've experienced it. If we love God with these things, our love is only seen as an obligation that's easily denied. And we've come to see it this way. It's something that we can easily admit that we cannot do. But if we love God from these things, then our love is an integration. It's an identity. It's how we were created. And it's so much harder to deny. This distinction transforms our love for God from duty to desire. But let's be real honest here. This really is not enough to make this impossibility possible. And you'd be right if you thought that. But there is more because Jesus knew this as well. So here's the second point. It's tied to the first Jesus made a significant allowance in this command with a major modification. So if you have a print Bible, you're going to see a little footnote there that says that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's an incredibly famous passage in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. And the Shema is the great Jewish confession and prayer that was offered both in the morning and the evenings. The scribe who asked this question of Jesus would have known this, and so would the entire crowd that was listening. But the Shema, if you're in your print Bible, you can turn there, it only offers three sources of our response. It only offers loving God from our heart and from our soul and from our strength. It was Jesus who added that we should also love God from our mind. Not with our mind, from our mind. And this 
major modification not listed in the Shema is the addition of grace in this command. What, a, what, a, what an oxymoron. It's a command with grace. But this is Jesus. It is Jesus's allowance to us and his permission to us. It is proof that loving God can only be done through Jesus. And here's why. With this addition, Jesus is telling us that he wants us to think. He wants us to debate, to let our minds wonder, to let our thoughts become this tangled mosaic. I'm speaking from experience. I think you know what I'm talking about. Because thinking through this allows us to see the dead ends for the straight and narrow way. It is Jesus's clear admission that loving God is more than an action. It's also a process. Without this one modification, keeping this commandment would be impossible. It would be. We know this. The Jewish people in the Old Testament proved this. Their entire story is a story of abject failure to keep any of the commands because loving God from their minds was never a part of it. They were to not think, just do, and they failed. William Platcher, he's a famed New Testament scholar and an author of a commentary on Mark. This is what he says about this major modification. I think this sums it up. Christian faith does not imply there are thoughts we should not explore, questions we should not ask, or subjects we should not investigate. To have faith in God with all our mind is precisely to believe that nothing we can learn or discover could ever be a threat to belief in God. Let me close by telling you to not be intimidated by this command. Jesus has given us the power and the allowance to love God and love him well. It's Jesus who has made this impossibility possible. Let's pray together tonight. Jesus, we worship you as the word of God, as the son, as the holy and righteous one as the savior of all things who has made it possible. It's you, Jesus, who's made it possible for us to love the father with all of our being. It's only possible with you. And we celebrate and acknowledge that here. We worship you for this. Give us the power and the will to do this better every day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.